This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of the form of sound words and the present study is the word foundation as we get it in Ephesians 1 chosen in him before the foundation of the world. When we were looking at the word fullness last time in this series we discovered that it was in opposition to a rent in a piece of cloth. That's the first occurrence in the Gospels, where a rent is a piece of cloth and is associated with that which is put in to fit it up. Now the rent is associated with this expression, foundation, although at first sight it seems just a very opposite. So the first thing for me to do is to ask you to realise that we have two distinct words in this epistle to the Ephesians, both translated in English by the word foundation. If you look at chapter 2, we read in verse 20, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, there you have built, and you have a cornerstone. And there you have the word themelion, which is the normal word for a foundation upon which anything is built. Other foundation can no man lay, uses this word. When we come to, to the expression in Ephesians 1, verse 4, when it says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, there we have a word which I, ex I uh, pronounce just like an English word, catter Boli. I don't suppose a Greek-speaking person would understand what I was saying if I said it like that, but I'm speaking to English people. Kata, in the ordinary way, means something which comes down. Boli is a part of the verb ballow, meaning I throw. And we've got the word in our word ballot, or ball, or balloon, or ballistics. Something thrown down. Now, if we use pagan Greek, the Greek of the philosophers, we can prove a good many things that are contrary to the teaching of Scripture. So I'm wanting you to remember that there was in existence 300 years before Christ a translation of the Old Testament Scriptures into Greek. And just as it's not possible to imagine the English language today not being influenced in any sense by William Tyndall, by William Shakespeare, or by the authorised version. We are using words today that they brought into existence, and we hardly know we quote them. So for 300 years, the people of Israel, who had given up speaking the Hebrew language, as you'll discover by reading some of the prophets, especially Daniel and elsewhere, they now spoke the language of their conquerors, they spoke Greek. And the Greek of the Septuagint is largely the Greek of the New Testament. Well, that being the case, before we pronounce judgment upon this very important word, kataboli, we should in some measure endeavour to discover how it is translated elsewhere. Well, I think you'll agree with me that the, the word kataboli being a noun and the katabello being a verb they must have something in common. If I take the verb to sing, well, I don't think I ought to sing a speech, did I? I ought to sing a song. All right. So, will you look now with me at this particular word? I'll point out on the chart 
where we are looking. The foundation of the word is that word kataboli. Leave that for a moment. And here we have the verb, and I've given one, two, three references. Now, shall we make those our own? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. Don't forget, this is translated foundation. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 9. The apostle is likened himself to an earthen vessel. And the most of us, at least the men part of our congregation, will know how easy it is for earthen vessels to come to pieces. You know. If you don't, you've been let off something, friends. All right. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Verse 7. Verse 9. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Now, nobody in his senses could mean that it was placed upon a foundation. It was knocked off a foundation. Cast down. Well, then the other reference of the same verb is in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Where we have war in heaven. We're not dealing with building anything up. Here's a war. And in chapter 12 it says, verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world, and he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So there we have that expression in the... Uh, Ninth verse, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Nobody in his senses would say that as a result of that war in heaven, Satan was built up upon a foundation. He was cast down. Well, so those two references of themselves should call us to halt a little bit and say, have we got the right story because this is important? Well, now I'm going to ask you to consider one in 2 Samuel 2015. And then I'll explain why that is important. 2 Samuel 2015. And they came and besieged him in Abel, Beth Marker. A, a siege is on, so a war is on. They're not building a city, they're besieging it. And they cast up a bank against the city, and it stood in the trench. And all the people that were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. They battered it with a battering ram to throw it down. Now that's the word which we have in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, you see, now you say, how do you know that's the word? Because you, you know as well as I do that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Well, that's where the Septuagint comes in. I have a copy here. I can't pass it around because it's a new one and we've got to sell it to get the money back, you see. But this is a most valuable bridge between the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New I start reading Enarchy. You say that like it says in John's Gospel. Enarchy in the beginning. Hotheos. Oh, that's in John's Gospel. You see, here is the Greek version of in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Starts like that. Well now, this is what I've done. 
believing that that, that Septuagint version has influenced the writing of the New Testament. Otherwise, if you have a people for 300 years believing Catabole means to build up a foundation, and then the Apostle wants to make it the opposite meaning, you ought to put a bit in brackets somewhere and say, now I'm changing the whole word, shouldn't he? But he doesn't. So, here we have uh, one passage I've lifted out to batter a wall down, to throw it down. 2 Samuel 20.15 I'm going to ask you, without turning to the passages because of the state of the time, uh, but you can get them, if you wish, by looking at one of the back numbers of the Brian, or you can do something better, you can get a headache by finding them yourself, and when you do that, they're yours, friends. Now, I went to the trouble to discover what Hebrew words were used or what the Hebrew words were that these men looked at when they put down this word that means to whatever it might mean, catabello, you see. I thought perhaps there'll be a loophole, perhaps one of them will mean to build up, but there isn't one. There are eight different Hebrew words. And here are the passages. I'll just give them to you. There are three in the book of Job. Job 12.14 is to crush. Crush. Another Hebrew word in Job 16 verse 9 is to tear. And in the same verse is to hate. There's nothing there to build up, is there? To crush, to tear, and to hate. And then we have in Ezekiel 26.5 to mar, M-A-R. And then in Ezekiel 29.5 to spread out. And in Ezekiel 26.9 to break down. And in Job, I didn't give this one, 16.14, to break forth. There's nothing there to build up. It's all breaking or marring or casting down or crushing. Well, so far as I'm concerned, the subject is closed. But here we have a, a legitimate link between Old and New Testament influencing the use of this word. Well, time will not permit me to go into it intimately. But I do suggest to everyone who's listening to this, if you are responsible for teaching others, never neglect this valuable link, the Septuagint version. If you can discover that word in the Septuagint, you've got an idea then what would be in the idea in the minds of those men for 300 years before ever they read a line in the New Testament. They would carry that with them. Well, now the next thing for us to do is to look at these two other strange words. Now, tohu and bohu are not Greek. They sound almost like funny words, don't they? They almost rhyme together. Tohu, bohu. They occur in only three passages. These two words together occur only three times in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to give you the passages as they come in, their, in the uh, book. First of all, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, we're right back at the beginning. Genesis 1. In the beginning, whenever that might be, we don't know. How far back, none of us knows. Millions of ages, if you like. I don't think anyone could walk through South Kensington Museum and see the skeleton of that great antique animal with a tail that wouldn't go inside this chapel 
and it, its back is up somewhere about the top of that window, and it'd be across the road looking over the roof. You can't argue about it, it's there. Well, I'm positive that when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he didn't have a lot of those romping about. That's nonsense. But they're there. They've left a footmark on the, on the sands that have solidified to give you an enormous monster. You see, we mustn't shut our eyes to that. So here it says, in the beginning, wherever it might be, God created the heaven and the earth. Our version says, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness is upon the face of the deep. You will notice that the word was, when it's repeated in this verse, and was upon the face of the deep, is in italic letters. You notice, the word was is printed in two different types. Now some of us in this very meeting know what it is to have our heads aching for watching mistakes in printing. What, what was it that made these printers go out of their way to print the word was in two different types? They must have had a reason, they did. Because although the verb to be is spoken in Hebrew, it is not written, it's assumed. But when you have it set out in full type, it's the verb to become. Like you get in chapter 2, and man became a living soul. It wasn't until that moment. So we translate this legitimately, and the earth became without form and void. Now that's only about 6,000 years ago. I've got great sympathy with the young students at college and school. Their science master says, now look, you know as well as I do that it's utterly impossible to believe that the whole creation that we see about us and know about came into existence just 6,000 years ago. What length of time? Just a few generations back. And of course they say, no, you can't possibly believe that. You can't see all this strata in the cliffs. You can't see buried coal mines. In fact, there's one place where there are seven different coal mines buried on top of each other with a layer of deposit in between. You can't get that lot done in 6,000 years to turn forests into minerals seven times over. You see? So, here we've got an answer. You say, look, the Bible hasn't been written to satisfy an archaeologist or satisfy those who are scientists. The Bible was written just to tell us the great story of redemption. And it starts not with mankind millions of years ago, but with one man who was made in the image of God. And that's very, very recent. So, do remember that, that the young student need not prostitute his, his mind. He can believe as many million ages as is needed that the Bible doesn't say that. Now, some people criticise Moses. They say that he hasn't started properly. He ought to have given us, in this first opportunity he had, a view, a conspectus of the whole programme of science right on to the, or oh, we, haven't, we haven't got to the end of it yet, friends. But what a fool Moses would have been, wouldn't he? He was writing primarily not for you or me, but for a nation of slaves that had just come out of bondage in Egypt. And what would they want to know about geology or all the other ologies? What would they want to know about splitting the atom or whatever it might be that these people want? And then, when you come to think of it, if Moses was going to write by inspiration of God a record of all creation, I think the poor man would be at it still. We never got a record of redemption at all. We'd still be learning and reading and studying these things with regard to 
science, which are right in their place, but they're no place here. So in that majestic one statement, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, the earth became without form and void. Now, I would justify that. And I would justify it by a principle in Scripture, which I commend to every student and every teacher. 1 Corinthians chapter 2.13 says, The words we are handling are the words which the Holy Ghost teaches. And so, that being the case, we should compare one passage with another. If you just look at a verse, build your doctrine upon it, and ignore the fact that it occurs somewhere else, you're not recognising the inspiration of Scripture. You're not safe guide, and you're not safe yourself. Now, if you will only go to the trouble, you'll discover that the words tohu and bohu, translated here without form and void, occur only together in two other passages. Surely we should be lazy people if we said, and I'm not going to bother to look at them. I hope you say to me, oh, tell me where they are. Well, I've put them there. We'll look at Jeremiah 4, first of all, because here we have a prophet using these two words, and we'll discover why he's using them. Because for the simple fact that he tells us. Jeremiah 4. Now we'll look at um, verse 22. For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. It's not without some suggestiveness that we have here the knowledge of good and evil creeping into the story. But that may be accidental, I don't know. Now we come. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. And you'll, deceive, you'll see what's happening and reason why, because it says in verse 26, I beheld and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. Now that's the prophet. Now he's gone out of his way to use those words without form and void, and he's told us, that this is judgment, this is fierce anger, this isn't creation. Well now what about the other one? Perhaps Isaiah will contradict Jeremiah. Some of the folks might wish he did. Well let's look. This is Isaiah 34. And the passage we must look at in a moment is verse 11, where the words without form and void or the equivalents occur. Isaiah 34. But would you let me just walk through these verses quickly? and ask whether this is judgment, or whether it's building up. Verse 2, indignation, fury, slaughter, carcasses in verse 3, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled together as a scroll, and their host shall fall, their, their, their host shall fall down. Sword is bathed in heaven. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood, verse 6. And so we get the actual word in verse 8, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Now that's not possible to ignore that, is it? All right, well now look at verse 11. And before we read it, when it says, stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness, the word confusion is the word tohu, and the word emptiness is the word bohu. So we put it back again. The lines of now, we can't say without form, 
and the stones of void. But there they are. He's using them, referring once again to Genesis 1 verse 2. So it says, but the cormorant and the bittern, their two unclean birds, shall possess it. And the owl also and the raven shall dwell in it. And, the, and he shall stretch out upon it a line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. All right, we go back to Genesis 1. And the earth became confusion and empty. In any case, you cannot possibly make these words bear the meaning of the word foundation as a building. It's to confound rather than to found. Well, now that means to say there's something here that we ought to keep in mind. That sometime in the past, a judgment fell before ever man was judged. Well, that opens up the scriptures and it says, the angels fell. Satan is a fallen being. And we start as a, in connection with our calling, where God began his great corrective, redemptive work with regard to that. So if you say, I don't see you want to waste time all about this you and you and all that. No, you think, may think not. But if you've got this clear in your mind that there was a judgment that fell and the earth was submerged and became a desolation and then God started again with a paradise and one man in it and that's where we start and that's where God is making his jumping off ground for this great redeeming purpose I think it will have a meaning well now let's come back to the New Testament because there are two forms of expression I've got them here on this chart if you will notice from the foundation and before the foundation. From, when it's used in connection with time, is sometimes better translated since. So in order to make sure, we'll just slip that word in instead. Now we have Matthew 13.35 Matthew 13.35 where it comes in the parables it says in verse 34, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret since the foundation of the world. And then in chapter 25 of Matthew, Still in Matthew's Gospel, you see, Matthew 25, verse 34. I was a stranger. Uh, verse 34, I'm sorry. Uh, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from or since the foundation of the world. And then we come to that passage in the book of the Revelation, Chapter 17, verse 8, I think. We'll make sure. Revelation 17, verse 8. Yes, this is a very difficult passage. The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life since the foundation of the world. Now, in each case, we could render it since the overthrow of the world. Since Genesis 1, verse 2, 
these parables of the kingdom, and this reference here, and the kingdom prepared, as it says in Matthew 25. Now, the other passages, where it speaks about before the overthrow, we must turn back once more to John 17, although we read it, to see the way in which it fits in its context. John 17. We were, we were remarking when we read it how the word glorify comes in the opening verses. Verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Before the world was. Now that's mere statement concerning the beginning of creation. Presently, he says in verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. So it's still that same thought about um, associating with be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou lovest me before the overthrow of the world. Now we're going to take that rendering. Before Genesis 1 verse 2 our Saviour is speaking of his relationship with the Father. And then we come to 1 Peter 1.20. 1 Peter 1.20. He uses it too. So that's the uh, John's Gospel and Peter, and we find Paul in Ephesians. 1 Peter, starting at verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Now, nobody knowing the Bible could deny that here we have a sacrifice for sin. You are not redeemed but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the overthrow of the world. So here we have a statement that our Saviour was set apart before Genesis 1 verse 2 to be the Redeemer. And that answers a multitude of questions. Why was it that God didn't strike Adam dead? In the day that thou sit down heatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And they stood in God's presence, expecting that to fall upon them. Instead of that, they were covered with coats of skin, which meant a sacrifice had been offered. They were told that their lives would now be forfeited and shortened, but Adam lived 930 years. That's a long time to wait, isn't it, if it was supposed to take place in that very day. Why did God alter his word? Why has God altered his word for you? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You've sinned, and so have I, and yet we're not going to die that death. Because behind the back of it all was the redemptive purpose of God, that when we sinned, he had provided a remedy. That's where Satan overstepped himself. He didn't know that, and he's done it so many, many times. When at last he crucified the Lord of glory, all little did he know, he was just bringing about the very fact that was going to be his undoing. The cross of Christ, the enmity and spite of man, was going to be the very altar, as it were, upon which was offered the Lamb of God. So, this is another passage. 
and was manifested in these last times for you. Now, Ephesians 1, verse 4. This is where we started. This is where our calling comes in. And this particular calling hasn't to do with the earth, and it hasn't to do with the heavenly Jerusalem. It has to do with a secret that is called in the New Testament a mystery. Let me just, I'm mostly speaking to you who know all about this, but I must try to make it plain in case, that from Genesis 12, I'll go back now, Genesis 1 to the end of chapter 11 occupies or is covering 2,000 years of history. You imagine it. 2,000 years of history packed into 11 chapters. And then somebody wants to know who was the wife of Cain. I say, I know already. You do? Mrs. Cain, good enough for me. Why should I bother to of what Moses to put all that down to satisfy some silly curiosity? You see? So if I've got to face the fact that 2,000 years of history are packed in to 11 chapters, then I come to chapter 12 where Abraham starts and the whole of the rest of the Bible occupies the same space of time to the birth of Christ. The whole Bible, from, from Abraham's call to the birth of Christ, and so that little bit there, if I'm a few pages out, I, I think the angels won't bother. Look, that little bit there is 2,000 years history, that little bit there is 2,000. Well, there's more space given in the Old Testament to the description of a tent or a tabernacle that Moses was put up in the wilderness than for the whole creation. Why? God's not concerned with describing the whole creation, he's concerned with redemption. And the tabernacle has to do with entrance into his presence and access and acceptance and so on. So you see, you must remember that if God waited to tell all the things that you want to know, you'd be like that silly man who was rushed off to hospital and when they got him out on the stretcher, he said, now wait a minute, before you take me in there, he wanted to know all about the foundation upon which the hospital was resting, he wanted to know the character and the names and the addresses of the surgeons and the nurses, and before they could find out information, the poor man was dead. Well, you see, it'd be far better if he'd gone into the hospital, had the operation, and then worried them about all these things afterwards. You know, he got all eternity, friends, to find out all these problems and more. And you may be satisfied then, but all let's put first things first. So we come back to Ephesians. Here we have the charter of our calling. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, in heavenly places occurs nowhere else in the word of God except in Ephesians. We get the word heavenly, in other places, but in heavenly places is limited. This is the sphere of the blessing of this company. There are some, the meek, are going to inherit the earth. Israel are going to fill the earth one day. God gave them that land and they're going to spread. Then there are some who will not be blessed on the earth. They will have the right to enter the street, the gates and walk the streets of the new Jerusalem. And then there are some, like you and me, who were outcasts, aliens, strangers, without covenant, without fathers, 
without Christ and without God. That's our description, friends. Just outsiders. Abraham is not our father. The only father we can claim in the Bible is Adam and he let us in for the whole evil. And here we are. Apparently outsiders having no claim being told by God he's going to use us in this parenthesis. While Israel are marking time in their blindness. While the nations are all getting ready for the final showdown before the end comes. He's calling out a people to be members of the body of Christ of which Christ is the head. And now it says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the overthrow of the world, before Genesis 1 verse 2, because we are going to enter into the heavenly places apparently from which the evil one in his first condition had an office. Now, I think I'm right in looking at that passage in Ezekiel 28 as something more than a man that he was perfect from the day when he was created, that he fell because of his own wisdom and beauty, which, as it were, he made it into a little idol. But right back there in the beginning, there was a spiritual fall. We've got enough passage in, in Scripture to tell us that. And God says, and this company, this church of the one body, they are going to inhabit those, place, those places which we generally think is the sphere of principality and power and dominion and throne. So the epistle to the Ephesians says that Christ, when he was raised from the dead, ascended up far above all heavens and it says that we find our blessings there. Set your affection on things above. Where Christ is at the right hand of God. So you see, this is not merely an academic story that we say we wasted an afternoon bothering about the translation of Catabello and Cataboli and Tohu and Bohu. They belong to our very calling. So we, we should be very foolish if we said, well I'm not concerned about anything that has a bearing on my inheritance or my blessings. We couldn't say that. So you see, this is more or less where we come in. Well now you see I've got a little graph on this chart. Here we have the world that was. I'm quoting from Peter now, 2 Peter 3, 5 and onwards. The world that was being overflowed with water perished. Now he may be referring to the flood of Noah, which if he was, it was only a, a smaller picture of the flood that took place in Genesis 1. We can take this as a picture of the whole. The world that was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, that's where we are now in this. Here's the water, that blue colour, but at the end it's going to be dissolved in fire. Now Peter didn't put a footnote at the bottom of his epistle and said, don't worry, later on you'll discover that water is made of oxygen and hydrogen and can set the whole world alight when God wants it to. I've even seen it flame, and I go back a long time to school and I knew it then. So the very water which is there as a judgment is going to be the inflammatory material at the end. Then it says, but I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well now I'm going to just put in what God has done with regard to our calling. I'll put that up there like this, you see. 
and the church of the one body in the dispensation of the mystery finds its sphere of blessing right above that water, you see, right above the present limitations, right above where Christ sitteth, far above all to the heavens that will never be dissolved and never pass away. The heavens that are going to pass away are the limited heavens that are here. Now, you remember in Genesis 1, God said, let there be a firmament. And Isaiah said, he spread out the heavens like a tent for him to dwell in. And then, when the purpose of the ages is finished, the tent's packed up and rolled away, and there's a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, you dear friends who are listening to this tape recording and have the little outline in front of you, well, I don't know whether we're going to photograph it with the pattern up. I think we'll have to. And then you will know that 2 Peter chapter 3 is hidden behind it. But I do trust that we've seen enough in this study to do two or three things. Not to be stampeded by a scientific objection. Always remember the need to verify references, especially in the Septuagint, if you're in doubt. And then distinguish between the two great spheres. Before the foundation or overthrow of the world, and since the foundation or overthrow of the world. And by so doing, you will be rightly dividing the word of truth. And as the scripture says, you may hope to be unashamed workmen as a consequence.